0: This is Verity and you're listening to The Beacon, the Oxford International Relations Society podcast. Today I'm speaking with Professor Avi Schleim, a leading historian on the Arab-Israeli crisis. Avi is author of The Iron Wall and Israel and Palestine, Reappraisals, Revisions, Refutations, and is currently Professor Emeritus of International Relations at St. Anthony's College, Oxford. In this episode, we'll be speaking about the challenges of writing the history of the Israeli-Palestine crisis, the meaning of national identity, and the situation on the ground in the Middle East today. Welcome to the podcast, Avi.
1: Happy to be here.
0: Um, Thank you very much. Um, I thought it'd be interesting to track your ideas and interests over time, Um, beginning with you. um, So you were born in Baghdad, grew up in Israel, attended school in London, returned to Israel for military service, studied history at Cambridge, and have lived in England ever since have these life experiences contributed to a sense of multiple identities and nationalities and if so do they compete and inform your work
1: that is a a good summary of my biography and a very um, difficult question to answer Um, the brief answer is that Like everyone else, I have multiple identities. But in my case, because I'm a Jew who was born in an Arab country and lived in Israel, the question of multiple identities um, is more more demanding. They are more difficult to reconcile. So my first identity was that of an Arab Jew. I was born in Baghdad and um, to a Jewish family, and we were Arabs. Uh, We happened to be Jewish. Today, in Israel, uh, there is a lot of resentment and opposition to the notion of an Arab Jew, because the two are said to be mutually Mm. exclusive categories. Mm -hmm. So if you are a Jew, you can't be an Arab, and if you are an Arab, you can't be a Jew. I reject that. Arab Jew is precisely the identity that my family and I had in uh, Iraq. Then, when I was five years old, we moved to Israel, and my new identity was that of an Israeli. Um, And um, as you mentioned, uh, I came after my education, uh, school education and military service in the Israeli army. I came to Britain. I did history. Uh, at Cambridge, and I've lived in Britain for the last 50 years. So I'm British now. Mm. This is another identity. I'm also a European by conviction.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and in general, people can sustain multiple identities. Mm. But in the Middle East, everything is polarized, mm-hmm. particularly between uh, Israelis. And Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Um, I myself don't have any conflict of identities. And in retrospect, I regard my background as an advantage mm-hmm. to me as a student of the Arab Israeli mm-hmm. conflict because I've lived on both sides of yeah. the divide. I have empathy for Arabs in general mm-hmm. and for Palestinians in particular. I understand both societies, so having different identities isn't a barrier or a problem to me, it's a positive advantage.
0: Because mm-hmm. the current debate about conflicting identities is obviously quite dominant in current affairs. Um, for example, um, there's a debate about whether an Arab or Muslim identity is compatible with a Western or democratic um, sort of lifestyle. Um, so I think that that's it's interesting that you talk about it as an advantage because I do think that we need those broad perspectives to understand how people experience the world around them. In your one of your most recent works, *The Irish Pages*, you talk about how your attitudes towards Israel develop over time, and how these different identities came to the fore. And you talk about the importance of distance, living in the UK, and also media exposure, for example, reading The Guardian, to your change of opinion. Could you perhaps describe how your interests um, and sort of research focuses have changed over time?
1: So I grew up in Israel, I went to school in Israel. Um, the version of history that I was taught at school is the standard Zionist version mm-hmm. of the birth of Israel and the arab Israeli conflict in which Israel featured always as the victim mm-hmm. um, and then um, I did national service in the IDF for two years in the mid nineteen sixties and I was inculcated with um, uh, a strong Israeli identity mm-hmm. um, and a rather aggressive attitude towards the Arabs. Mm-hmm. So I became uh, an entrenched Israeli patriot and. Um, in our field international relations there is a vast literature about nationalism Mm -hmm. Um, there is the famous description of nationalism by benedict anderson uh, as um,
0: an imagined community
1: imagined communities Uh, this is all very cerebral and academic Mm -hmm. but when i was an 18 year old soldier Mm -hmm. i felt nationalism in my bones Mm -hmm. In the induction ceremony for my platoon, um, on in the twilight on the Judean mountains, we all shouted in unison: "In blood and iron, Judea fell. By blood and iron, Judea will rise again." Um, and there was uh, fi- um, there was um, uh, f- firing, submachine gun fire which illuminated the sky, which was, for a teenager, this was a very, very powerful mm. emotional uh, impact. Yeah. Um, so I was an ardent Israeli nationalist, um, and I believed that we were a small country, that we had justice on our side, and we were surrounded by um, uh, terrible, hostile enemies. And we had to stand up and fight. That was my worldview at the time. And it only changed very, very gradually when I was a history student at Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And later on, uh, I would read The Guardian. And I formed a much more critical perspective about Israel. And I was no longer the ardent um, nationalist that I had been. I served loyally and proudly in the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, because in my time, the IDF was true to its name. It was an Israeli defense force which was there to defend the country against regular Arab armies of the neighboring states. After the Israeli victory in the Six-Day War, in June 1967, and the acquisition by Israel of the West Bank, the Sinai Peninsula, and the Golan Heights, Israel became a colonial empire. Mm. And the IDF became the brutal police force of a brutal colonial power. Mm. So my disenchantment with Israel began about Mm. 50 years ago, And it's still going on
0: today. Mm. I mean, that that story that you told about um, your platoon's induction, I think for someone like me, that sort of visceral nationalism is quite hard to imagine. But it's perhaps important to remember that in Western Europe and America, we've shied away from that militaristic nationalism since World War II. But in many other parts of the world, it's still the case Um, and we perhaps shouldn't be so shocked by its resurgence today. The transition that you just described um, is a background to the New Historians, which is a historiographical group that you're a part of. In 1988, several historians, including yourself, Benny Morris, and Ilan Pathé, published revisionist works criticising Israel and its role in the Arab-Israeli crisis. And you described that the New Historians had three main impacts. Firstly, to educate Israelis about, um, about history. Secondly, to include Arabs in this historical narrative because they'd conventionally been excluded. And thirdly, to generate a climate of opinion conducive to a peace process. Could you perhaps uh, explain the New Historians your perspectives and perhaps if you could comment on how consciously political the writing of history is in this context.
1: Um, So, as you said, in 1988, um, Benny Morris, Ilan Pape and I published books and collectively we became known as the Revisionist Israeli Historians Mm -hmm. or the New Historians because between us we mounted... um, a comprehensive attack on all the myths that have come mm-hmm. to surround the birth of Israel in the first Arab-Israeli war and the biggest influence on me was Ilan Pape mm-hmm. because Ilan Pape wrote a D-field thesis uh, here at the Middle East Center okay. at St Anthony's College and I was his external examiner Mm-hmm. This was in 1984 and all the ideas of the new history mm-hmm. were there in his thesis mm-hmm. in one form or another. So he's been a major influence on my thinking. That was that triggered the process of looking back mm-hmm. and re-examining Israel's history. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my trajectory. As a a new historian but at the time the new history made quite an impact in Israel Mm. Um, and it attacked or called into question all things that I had been taught at school Mm. and that all Israelis believed Mm. and there were uh, five main bones of contention in the debate between the old historians and the new historians. Uh, one was um, the Palestinian refugee problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, were they, did they leave of their own accord or where they pushed? The old historians said they left off their own mm-hmm. accord and on an orders from the leaders. We said Israel expelled them. Mm-hmm. Israel is responsible. Another question, uh, another issue is the military balance in 1948. The old historians say it was an unequal struggle between an Arab uh, Goliath and a Jewish David. Mm -hmm. We looked at the military balance in the Palestine theater and we showed that the Jews outnumbered and then outgunned Mm -hmm. all the Arab forces, regular and irregular, operating in the Palestine theater. So in this war, as in most wars, the stronger um, uh, side Mm -hmm. prevailed. Um, Then another issue was Arab war aims in 1948. The old historian said the Arab coalition that invaded Palestine in 1948 invaded with a clear aim of strangling the new Jewish birth as it came into the world Mm -hmm. and throwing the Jews into the sea. We showed that the Arab coalition facing Israel was one of the most bitterly divided, ramshackle and disorganized coalitions in the history of warfare. Mm. And different participants in that coalition had different um, national Mm -hmm. uh, agendas. And it was the inability of the Arabs to coordinate the diplomatic and military strategy that was partly responsible for the defeat Mm -hmm. that uh, overwhelmed them. Uh, Another issue was Britain's aims uh, towards the end of the mandate. And the old historian said Britain's aim was to prevent the birth of a Jewish state. Mm -hmm. Uh, We say Britain was resigned to the inevitable emergence of the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. Its real aim, secret aim, was to abort the birth of a Palestinian state. Mm -hmm. So there is a case against Mm -hmm. Britain at that time, but it's not the case that the Zionists make against. And the final issue is, why did the conflict persist after the guns fell silent? Mm -hmm. The old historians answer is in two words, Arab intransigence, our answer, Is more nuance that Israeli intransigence was a bigger factor Mm -hmm. than Arab intransigence. So the new history had the merit of generating uh, a debate in Israel Mm -hmm. about the past Mm -hmm. and forcing Israelis to look back at the history Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: to draw lessons from it. So it was a very positive thing.
0: one of your main arguments um, that you just flagged at the end, the fact that Israeli intransigence was in fact a larger factor in during conflict, um, is that Israel's leaders have always preferred the use of force to diplomacy when dealing with the Arabs. We call this an iron wall of Jewish military power. But I mean, this challenges many Israelis' sense of themselves and their national identity. How do you navigate a political environment where there are such high stakes. I mean, people are talking about their own identities, their uh, the meaning of their religions, military power, even national survival.
1: My book, The Iron Wall, Israel and the Arabs, came out in 2000. And in 2014, I updated it mm. and added... For new substantive chapters so currently um, the Iron Wall is 900 pages mm-hmm. um, and when I speak at literary festivals I give people two pieces of advice one is don't buy this book <laughs> and two if you buy don't drop it on your foot
2: mm-hmm.
1: so it's 900 pages mm-hmm. it's very detailed it's thoroughly documented But I can summarize it for you uh, in one sentence, which is, ever since its birth, Israel has been ready, always ready, too ready to resort to military force, Mm -hmm. but reluctant, remarkably reluctant, to engage in meaningful diplomacy Mm -hmm. to resolve its conflict with the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. So the theme of the book is all along uh, there's been Israeli militarism Mm -hmm. and uh, all along the Israeli military establishment has been uh, dominant and that Israeli foreign policy in most um, phases of this conflict was subordinated to Israeli defense Mm -hmm. uh, policy.
0: And... The... Israel's military is a major part of its statehood. It was through the military and the IDF that the state of Israel was born. But increasingly, there seems to be a conflict or perhaps tension between Zionism, Israeli militarism, and Judaism. And we can see this in terms of politics. There there are debates about the future direction of the state and how religious it should be. Looking ahead to the future briefly, do you see a fragmentation in Israel's identity, and could this perhaps change the importance of militarism in its future international relations?
1: Well, I'd like to start in June 1967 Mm -hmm because that was the real turning point. Mm-hmm. Israel's victory and the travelling of its, the territory under its rule reopened the questions of the territorial aims of Zionism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, on the eve of the Six-Day War, the Zionist aim had been achieved. Mm-hmm. There was a viable, secure, uh, Jewish state mm-hmm. in Palestine. But now that Israel had all these additional Mm -hmm. territories, the question was what to do with them. Mm -hmm. And the moderates wanted to trade land for peace Mm -hmm. with the Arabs, Uh, but the nationalists wanted to keep all these territories, Mm -hmm. especially the West Bank, which they said is an integral part of the historic homeland. Mm -hmm. So the Zionist movement was derailed
2: Mm -hmm.
1: in 1967. It used to be Zionism of values Mm. and now it became Zionism with a territorial imperative and with a commitment to keeping the integrity of the historic um, uh, homeland. Mm -hmm. So that was the big change that happened after the Six-Day War and in more recent years, in the last well, in the last, since the Second Intifada broke Mm -hmm. out in the year 2000, Israel has been moving steadily to the right. Mm -hmm. And this is reflected in the composition of the governments. The governments have become steadily more and more Mm right-wing. And the present government, headed by Benjamin Netanyahu, is the most um, right-wing, Um, reactionary, um, uh, nationalistic, and overtly racist government Mm. in Israel's history. And there's been another trend, which is a a growing number of Orthodox Jews Mm
2: -hmm.
1: in Israel, uh, and they are not interested in old history or new history or revisionist history, their history book is the Bible,
2: mm-hmm.
1: so all they care about is that God promised the land to the Jewish people, mm-hmm. uh, and the whole of the land of Israel belongs to the Jews mm-hmm. and no one else. So you have a very strong trend towards religious nationalism and secular nationalism mm-hmm. converging to make Israel what it is today. Mm-hmm. and this. Societal change has also affected the Israeli army.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In, in my time, it was very rare to see someone wearing a skull cap. There are really? very, very few um, uh, religious soldiers mm-hmm. and hardly any religious um, officers. Mm-hmm. Whereas today, uh, the officer corps, a third of the officer corps, Uh, religious Jews who were Mm -hmm. Skalka, Orthodox Jews, and many of them uh, uh, live in the settlements Mm -hmm. on the West Bank. So the profile of the Israeli army Mm -hmm. has changed, uh, and the army as a whole has become much more uh, imbued with a Jewish identity Mm -hmm. as well as a Zionist identity.
0: Against this background, is the two-state solution still feasible?
1: Um, All my working life, I supported a two-state solution. I supported a two-state solution because whichever way you look at it, the creation of Israel in 1948 involved a monumental injustice to the Palestinians. But the question was, where do we go from here? And I wasn't one of those who wanted to put the clock back and to dismantle Mm -hmm. the state of Israel because that would have been an even greater injustice. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that left the two-state solution Mm -hmm. as one that would give relative justice to the Palestinians. And Edward Said described Jews and Palestinians not as enemies, but as two communities of suffering.
2: Mm -hmm. They
1: both suffered a lot. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
1: So that's why I supported the two-state solution, Mm -hmm. that it would give partial uh, justice and restitution to the Palestinians. By signing the Oslo Accord, they gave up the claim to 78% of -hmm. mandatory Palestine, Mm -hmm. in the expectation that they would have an independent state uh, in Gaza, Mm -hmm. the West Bank, with a capital city in East Jerusalem. So I supported the Mm two-state solution, and I was euphoric at the time of Oslo Mm -hmm. because I thought that that's the beginning of the resolution of the conflict. But it was not to be. Mm Tzach Rabin was assassinated Mm -hmm. by a Jewish fanatic, the, labor, the Likud party under Benjamin Netanyahu came back to power in 1996, and uh, the Likud began to undermine, freeze, and arrest the Oslo peace process. Mm-hmm. So Israel was responsible, the Likud in Israel mm-hmm. was responsible for destroying the Oslo peace process and the possibility of a two-state solution mm-hmm. and if you press me to give you to summarize in one word the reason for the breakdown of the Oslo peace process I can do that and the word is settlements mm-hmm. even as we speak yeah. the Netanyahu government is expanding Jewish mm-hmm. settlements on the West Bank yeah. and settlement expansion is land grabbing
2: mm-hmm.
1: land grabbing and peacemaking don't go together. Mm -hmm. It's one or the other. Mm -hmm. By its actions, the Israeli government shows that it's not interested in peacemaking. So it's Israel which has all but eliminated the option of a two-state solution. Mm -hmm. And therefore, in recent years, I've shifted my position and I now support a one-state solution.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. One state over Israel and the West Bank and Gaza mm. with equal rights for all its citizens mm-hmm. regardless regardless of uh, religion or ethnicity.
0: Mm. I mean, it's I think the way in which the Israel-Palestine crisis is still very much a continuing living development is one of the things that made me so interested by it. I... Began studying it in my last years of school while reading your books and seeing Operation Protection Edge on the news. So when Israel launched a military operation against Gaza in 2014, it's the way that history and politics and identity are so interlinked that makes the conflict so intense, but also fascinating to study. You've described Israel in its present state as a rogue nation, so one that violates international law, seeks to develop weapons of mass destruction, and resorts to terror and violence to pursue its national interests. If this is a case, who, if anyone, any state or institution or public opinion, um, has leverage to change a situation on the ground from one which is highly divisive to an equal one state solution?
1: Israel um, disregards international law mm. and UN resolutions. Yep. And it behaves with complete impunity
2: mm-hmm.
1: because no one calls Israel to account for its actions. Mm-hmm. Um, old history used to claim that all of Israel's wars are defensive wars. Mm. The new history has demonstrated that not all of Israel's wars are defensive Mm. wars. Some are offensive wars initiated uh, by Israel when there is no threat to its security. Mm. The Sinai War of 1956 Mm. was the first war of choice. The invasion of Lebanon in 1982 Mm was a war of choice, and all three attacks on Gaza in the last 10 years or so have been offensive operations, uh, completely unjustified, in no way defensive operations. And they were acts of state terror, because terror is the use of violence against civilians for political purpose, mm-hmm. and this is what the three Israeli operations on Gaza uh, have, have um, been. And your question is, who has the power to reign in mm-hmm. Israel? And the answer is that, theoretically, it should be the United Nations.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But the United Nations is paralyzed, by the power of the veto. And America, in particular, has a special relationship with Israel.
0: And we saw um, the United States withdrew from UNESCO just today based on an anti-Israeli bias, so we can definitely see that in current affairs today.
1: Indeed, this happened today, and it's very striking that America and Israel withdrew altogether Mm. from UNESCO on the grounds... That UNESCO is anti-Israeli. Uh, mm-hmm. It shows you how committed America is
2: mm-hmm.
1: to um, Israel. Uh, since 1967 America arrogated to itself mm-hmm. a monopoly over the diplomacy surrounding the Arab-Israeli conflict. But America uh, has not brought Israel to a settlement, mm. uh, and a settlement can only happen if America pushes Israel mm-hmm. into a settlement. That America gives Israel uh, financial, military, and diplomatic support, mm. and it's all unconditional. Yeah. That's the key point about American support for Israel. It's mm. unconditional, so Israel can do whatever it likes, mm. and she doesn't have... Israel doesn't have to pay the price. Israel gets away literally with murder. Mm. And every time there is a resolution critical of Israel at the Security Council, America vetoes it. Mm. So effectively, Israel enjoys the veto on the Security Council. It doesn't wield it directly, but through its proxy, Mm. through its little friend. The little friend is the United States of America. That's why Israel continues with its policies of oppressing the Palestinians, of confiscating more and more Palestinian land, of violating systematically the human rights of the Palestinians, of disregarding um, UN resolutions, of disregarding the judgment of the International uh, Court of Justice, which says, that the so-called security barrier mm. on the West Bank is illegal. Israel doesn't take any notice of any of these criticisms, rules and laws, and it acts with complete impunity. Mm. It's because uh, America, um, America's support for Israel is unconditional. And America used to claim to be an honest broker in this conflict. Mm-hmm. But the truth of the matter is that America is a dishonest broker yeah. because of its partiality mm-hmm. to Israel. If you look at Trump's position mm-hmm. today, he, he acts more like Israel's lawyer mm-hmm. than as an honest broker.
0: Yeah. And I mean, for my generation, I've grown up s- since Oslo, which was the late... The, the latest, I suppose, breakthrough in the peace process. And in my living memory, um, it's always been a case of this deadlock. And I think that there's a sense that the Middle East is a mess and therefore trying to understand it is just too difficult or perhaps people don't know where to start. What, would you, like, what advice would you give to people who um, perhaps don't understand why understanding the Israeli crisis is important or just don't
1: know um, where to look? Uh, I'll answer your question in two stages. First, to emphasize that the um, Israeli Palestinian conflict is the most important conflict in the region,
2: mm.
1: it's the longest, most protracted, um, and most central. An important conflict Mm. in the region and there can be no peace and no stability and no security in the Middle East until this conflict is Mm. resolved this is not to say that once you resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict all the other conflicts would be resolved as well but without a resolution to this fundamental conflict it's impossible to um, conceive of a peaceful Mm -hmm. uh, middle east so it's a very important Mm -hmm. conflict Mm -hmm. and the second part of the question is what should people do Mm -hmm. to understand this conflict because it seems so complicated and um, um, it seems such a mess Mm -hmm. My answer to that is to study history. History is a key to understanding the present situation. Mm -hmm. It's the key to to assessing future prospects. As Winston Churchill once said, the further back you go, the further further forward you can see. Mm -hmm. So you can't possibly understand um, the situation on the ground today Unless you understand the historical context, mm-hmm. and this year, 2017, is the hundredth yep. anniversary of the Balfour Declaration, mm-hmm. um, and I've given about 12 talks and uh, interviews on the Balfour Declaration, mm-hmm. but it because it is absolutely crucial to understanding what happened, because the Balfour Mm -hmm. Declaration prepared the way for the systematic Zionist takeover of Palestine that continues to this very day. So the key to understanding this conflict is to look at history.
0: As a history and politics student, I couldn't agree more. But I was wondering, is there any tension between your roles as a historian, and a public figure in your work?
1: Um, As I see, there isn't any conflict between my work as a historian and my public engagement. I don't uh, define myself as a political activist, Mm -hmm. but I do define myself as a politically engaged scholar. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there are some scholars who are ivory tower scholars,
2: Mm. who are not
1: engaged with the world Mm. outside, Um, I'm not one of them, Mm -hmm. I'm a politically engaged scholar, so I look at the past Mm. in order to understand um, the origins of this conflict, its history, And, in the course of uh, my 47 years as a university teacher, I've learned quite a lot about this particular Mm -hmm. conflict. So, I write a lot of books and articles that are scholarly, Mm -hmm. but when I write books, I try to reach a wider audience. Mm -hmm. So, um, my books are well-documented, but the uh, evidence is in endnotes at the end, and the general reader isn't interested in the evidence and the footnotes, they're interested in the the narrative. So I try to reach a broader audience in what I write uh, because I believe that it's my duty as a scholar to share my knowledge and expertise about this conflict with the wider public rather than just with students and other other scholars. And this is a dilemma that not only academics face, Mm. um, but also students face. Mm. Uh, There are Palestinian students in Oxford, uh, Arab students in Oxford who are supporters of the uh, Palestinian cause. And some sort of traditional tutors would say to them, don't don't dabble in politics. Concentrate on your studies. After you leave Oxford, then would be the time for political activism. I would um, resist this piece mm. of advice. I would say um, studies, education and political involvement should be combined together. Mm. Uh, And the studies should inform the political Mm -hmm. um, engagement. I I write quite a lot of op-ed articles in Mm -hmm. newspapers, especially in The Guardian. Mm -hmm. And I appear on radio and television, though less and less on television because I speak very slowly. Mm -hmm. Um, And my wife calls me... A hackademic mm-hmm. because i double in journalism and i don't like the term academic mm-hmm. because it's the academic who comes first mm-hmm. um, it's the research that i do as an academic which feeds into my work as mm-hmm. a journalist so i would settle for the term an aka hack <laughs>
0: um, and on that note What are three books that have influenced you in your thinking and that perhaps you would recommend to the audience?
1: Um, One author is Edward Said, Mm -hmm. whom I knew, not very well, but I knew him, and all his work influenced Mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. So um, the question of Palestine mm-hmm. was his first statement on the subject and I found it extremely persuasive
2: mm-hmm.
1: precisely because it had showed so much sympathy
2: mm-hmm.
1: to um, towards the Jews.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, no, it wasn't one-sided um, uh, and it illustrated the terrible injustice that Britain has committed towards the Palestinians. Mm. Um, So reading that book gave me a very balanced uh, view of the conflict and a much better understanding of the Palestinian side Mm. in this conflict, which I didn't know so well. And another book, by um, Edward Saeed, is Orientalism, mm-hmm. his, perhaps his most famous book, and that gave rise to the whole school of post colonial mm-hmm. history. And that helped me to understand the importance of the colonial context mm-hmm. in which the Arab Israeli conflict developed. And it also taught me that. Knowledge is power,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and how knowledge is used by Orientalists
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, to influence government policy. Yeah. So, knowledge and power are not two separate categories, mm-hmm. but one is used uh, usually for bad purposes. Um, uh, knowledge of the Orientalists leads to prejudiced and one sided policies towards the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to redress the balance by using my, my knowledge, mm-hmm. my expertise in, uh, to give a more honest view of this um, conflict. So these are two books. And if I were to choose a third book, it would be uh, Maxime Rodanson, Israel, colon, A Colonial Settler State, question mark. It's a very thin book, uh, Mm -hmm. almost a pamphlet, but it uh, gives a framework for understanding the emergence of Israel, which is a colonial settler Mm -hmm. state. So this is a perspective which is still useful today to understand Israel's uh, trajectory. There is no question Israel was created as a colonial
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, settler state by the Balfour Declaration. Mm-hmm. Brit- the Zionists were the allies of the colonial power of the day mm-hmm. of Britain, and Britain helped the Zionists to turn what uh, a national home for the Jews in Palestine into a Jewish state. But after 1967, Israel continued to acquire Mm -hmm. more territory and to settle more and more Jews on the West Bank. Mm -hmm. So the framework of uh, settler colonialism is the framework that I still use to Mm -hmm. understand the nature of this conflict. And um, Noam Chomsky once said Mm -hmm. that settler colonialism uh, is the most vicious form of imperialism. Mm. So that's my... These are the three yeah. books that I would single out.
0: No, that's, thank you. Um, and finally, for listeners who'd like to find out more, where should they go to follow your work?
1: I think that um, all the work of the new historians is relevant to people who want to understand... Uh, this um, conflict, Um, and if they uh, are interested in my work in particular, then uh, the two books that I would suggest is a Penguin book, Mm -hmm. a very short book called War and Peace in the Middle East, Mm -hmm. which is an introduction to the international relations of the region. Mm And it's not just about the Arab-Israeli conflict. It's also about Arab politics, Mm -hmm. inter-Arab politics, and a third dimension of uh, the international relations of the Middle East, which is great power involvement Mm -hmm. in the Middle East. So that's a very short and easy introduction Mm -hmm. to the international relations of the region. And if they have a specific um, interest in the Arab-Israeli conflict, uh, then there is my book, The um, Iron Wall, uh, which has, uh, it doesn't have the merit of brevity, but it has the merit of being comprehensive mm. and of hopefully being c- quite readable. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's also books by Ilan Pape. He's very prolific. Um And any newcomer to the subject, I would suggest uh, that they read his book, The Ethnic Cleansing Mm -hmm. of Palestine, about 1948, Mm -hmm. and they'll get a good understanding of what happened in that year.
0: And for all the listeners, um, I couldn't recommend Avi's books more and the wider work of the new historians to understand the Arab-Israeli crisis and Middle East today. Avi, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And to all the listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and keep listening to The Beacon in future.
1: Thank you.